Welcome to Fretknot with me, Rosie Bennett. Fretknot is the podcast that aims to demystify the learning process that we all go through in our lives, work and otherwise. I'll be talking to the champions in our field about the lessons that have defined their careers and help us to work out how we can learn from what they've already figured out. Nothing in life is a linear process, so let's get more at ease with the ups and the downs and realise that wherever we are in our journey, we really aren't alone. This podcast is brought to you by Augustine Strings, a company with real heart, a fascinating history and my string of choice. Check them out at augustinestrings.com. In today's episode, I talk to British-Japanese guitarist Sean Sheeby, born in Edinburgh in 1992 and going on to study with Alan Neve, Paolo Pegoraro. Sean is the first guitarist to have been selected for the BBC Radio 3 New Generation Artists Scheme, as well as being the first guitarist to receive the Royal Philharmonic Society Award for Young Artists. Sean is well known for his dedication to expanding the classical guitar repertoire and for releasing the boundaries of our field. His critically acclaimed album, Soft Loud, won a gramophone award in the newly created concept album category. And his recording of the Barclay Suites spent three weeks at number one, as well as two months in the top five in the UK specialist classical charts. Sean, what is a lesson you've learned that has been the most meaningful to you? I think particularly coming out of conservatory, there's a sort of tendency to try and establish some sort of order on the way one constructs career. Um, And that can be part of things like joining young artist schemes um, or, you know, finding scholarships for a teacher or whatever. And and we can sort of use these mechanisms to try and give ourselves a a framework to to work with. But I think um, COVID just brought home how uh, that's just entirely fictional and it is in reality completely chaotic all the time. And, you know, uh, that was was sort of uh, exhausting to grapple with um, and realize how, how fragile what all of us do is. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot because before COVID, there wasn't too much time to really contemplate what we actually do. Yeah, the, the sort of pointlessness or the lack of uh, precision of a lot of artistic projects has seemed indicative of the uh, kind of inertia and lack of precision in many um, in many uh, other spheres of life. Mm. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you struggle with? pre-corona oh no i think pre-covid i was like very much like this is this is yeah i know what's going on you know um and i I think it was perhaps because i was so uh i felt very defined that i i i experienced it in in some way so so jarringly um and i I think you know i was think talking with with a friend also a musician about um about this sort of you know question of identity and and stuff Mm. um before the second lockdown and he was like I mean it's a particular view that I, I'm not sure I really agree with entirely really but um he was like yeah the thing is like this is part of the reason why I'm not sure about like music schools as a structure that um from such an early age you're sort of quite dogmatically mm-hmm. interweaving your personality and your sort of identity and, and your self-perception in the idea of being a musician Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lack of sort of other development 
which I, I think is definitely true uh, to the point of fault for a lot of people. I don't think it's true for everybody who goes through music school. Um, and, and I think music schools have many faults and perhaps perhaps that is not actually the greatest. Yes, I mean... Do you want to talk about music school, Rosie? Do you want to, do you want to go there? <laughs> I would say probably 90% of the wrinkles that I currently have on my face are, are due to my experiences at Menuhin. But, you know, my, my experience was perhaps quite singular as well because I knew so little going in. I think a lot of people have teachers before that. So I, I only ever studied with Richard. So my experience was always going to be dogmatic just because I had one stream of information. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I think as a kid, it's quite easy because you develop that sort of parent child connection yeah, with your teacher right. in a way that is, I mean, ugh, there's so many issues with this, but in, in it's in a way that's quite difficult for the psyche because you sort of have this parent who has other children but you don't know what goes on in private with those other children. Um, so you can't even have the feeling of real sort of jealousy or of like possessiveness over your teacher. And mm. usually teachers do care, but only to a certain point. So I think a lot of it's sort of imagined. And but I think generally the dogmatism is not necessarily the, the intended fault of any person within those structures. I mean, obviously you have certain characters, but... I think the experience itself is just quite dogmatic because you never take any charge of what you're doing. Um, at least that's what I found. I kind of, I felt like I mm. was on a steady, a steady way up, like I was walking somewhere. And then I got to 18 and I left school and then have kind of sort of fallen down a rabbit hole of, oh my God, what is life? What am I doing? Who am I? <laughs> um, and right. I was quite lucky to do that very quickly. I sort of... Um, as soon as I left the structures, I sort of had a complete breakdown of identity and understanding and then I could build it up. I think that in itself is quite lucky out of music school because I know a lot of people who who struggle with it consistently and who never have the who never have the rupture actually. Right. And sort sure. of live in that state for a while. What was your experience of that? Because you also started young and you were in conservatory very young. Well, I think, you know, Alan Neve, who was my teacher, was very liberal mm. and um, he often disagreed with what I did, but he always gave me the room to do it anyway and make my own mistakes. So, like, um, I'm always very grateful to him for that because I, I know that, like, the other teachers largely in the UK would, would not be down for that. Mm -hmm. And certainly the other teachers in my life after after conservatory have not been have not been like that either um and i think there's a time and a place for it and maybe you know maybe it was too liberal too young but i'm definitely happy um i'm happy with the way it 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 worked for me mm -hmm. um and uh i i think when you're young and you're choosing a, a, a teacher and you have parents who are not um musical or even if they are Anyway, it, it sometimes doesn't make any difference to the fact that it's a bit of a crapshoot, right? You don't know, like, mm -hmm. if your teacher that you, that you pick is going to be good or not because you have no understanding, really, for for many years of, of what a good teacher is. It's sort of like when you find one, then you know. Mm -hmm. But um, for all the trial lessons that we can take, it's it's uh, it, it's not something that is proved in is proven in, in one hour right you sort of have to have like a year or so or mm -hmm. well not quite but do you know what I mean it's it's something that's very hard to evaluate um and yeah. so whether or not you find somebody who works for you is is very 
is very it's very tricky very tricky it's a bit luck of the draw really and especially at the age where you first usually start playing it's impossible because you don't have any parameters with which to judge anything actually <laughs> so it's a lot of trust a, tr a lot of trust in something that actually I mean is just sort of a complete roulette of whether or not you get somebody that you can um you can really rely on I guess maybe rely on is not the right word I'm, I'm struggling for the right word yeah I know what you mean though it's not like most music schools have enough guitarists that you could really justify having two guitar teachers but Sometimes I feel like, as a point of principle, there must be two teachers, you know, and ideally one should not be a pupil of the other at some point, which is, which is, um, mm -hmm. well, I mean, you know, the reasons why, why I justify that, I mean, I don't need to justify it, really, it's so obvious, right? Um, and um, yeah, I think I can think of numerous situations around the UK that must be echoed in Europe and North America, where it's not only that that is the case, that one teacher is the pupil of the other teacher or has been at one point but also that the pupil knows that this is not a good solution and mm -hmm. they're sort of not able to speak about it either oh i don't know off with their heads rosie that's what i've got to say <laughs> it's really hard though it's really hard it's hard to be diplomatic and what it needs is this sort of understanding that you can act in a way that has negative consequence even if you have good intentions mm. a lot of people who have been through music actually not even just music schools but through any kind of music education system a lot of people come out with this sort of the symptoms of toxic relationships yeah god i mean i was talking to a mutual friend of ours who um was was really struggling with the ramifications of their relationship with uh, their their teacher and it's it's something that just it's it's so persistent like it's just it's yeah, yeah. it is it's know. odd and it was only when i started teaching myself that I really realized how tricky it is to walk that tightrope of being a teacher because actually it's a lot of responsibility and I think there are a lot of things that you can do to kind of empower students which I think is really the only way of repairing any of that toxicity between teachers and students and this obviously I'm talking on the basis of I'm not talking about physical or sexual abuse just talking about sort of this toxic relationship that happens so often Oh, of course. Yeah, I um, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think it's really the only way of doing it is to sort of empower students through letting them, for instance, have a little bit more choice over their destiny. So things like choosing their own pieces or choosing the way they want to play something, giving students all of the information that's possible without having too much um, sort of dictatorship over what they end up doing. Actually, I think that if you have a really intelligent child on your hands who acts in any other respect like an adult, it can be really easy to forget that you have a kid who's maybe, you know, seven or eight years old in front of you. Oh, sure. Yeah. So it's tough and it, it really stems into later life. And I think that's also because uh, I've been talking a lot now, but I mean, I think it also stems into later life just because having spent so much time studying when you're young and um, critiquing yourself in a way that is not let's say it's not in the normal trajectory of a child to critique yourself to that extent until maybe you hit puberty. I think it sort of stunts a lot of the, the mental growth that we do as people. 
which is why you can sort of get into your 20s and be completely oblivious of things that other people in their 20s are. Mm. It, it is, uh, it's a minefield and it's really, <laughs> it's really hard because there's not one solution. Every situation is unique. Right. But yeah, definitely mentally there's a lot, uh, there's a lot at stake, there's a lot going on and you've got a lot of highly strung people doing a lot of high pressure things. It's, it can, I guess it's a, sort of a nightmare, really, thinking of how to restructure the system. But on the other hand, that also means that pretty much anything that would happen would make it better. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I do, I, like, well, you know. I mean, sometimes I do feel like the way the guitar fits into these systems is often less perfect than the way other instruments do, um, mm -hmm. purely by, by virtue of it being a younger instrument um, mm. in, in terms of its adoption into, like, conventional and, and traditional systems of education. So... Um, so, uh, I guess what I'm sort of leaning towards saying is like, it'll take time, but what we need and what will slowly happen is, uh, just better teachers. I mean, it's not only about understanding, you know, which studies to give your, like, five-year-old, it's just, it's about, um, you know, a softness of, of approach, um, that, uh, I, I guess I feel, I feel sort of like the people who first brought the guitar to conservatory systems were people who sort of had to be like hard-assed about it right and they had to really have vision and like maybe that also came along with like a couple of toxic traits um mm. and um and we're sort of slowly getting out of that right um and mm -hmm. and slowly dealing with people who are who are slightly less insecure with their their position as a guitarist or insecure of the, the, the insecure over like the guitarist position in in whatever faculty they're teaching in um mm. and uh God, I really feel like I'm talking around a certain number of names, but I'm just not going to mention those <laughs> names. Oh, whatever. I mean, you know who I'm talking about anyway, probably. Like, you know, the, the, yeah, the, but the, the span that it goes to is quite... Oh, it's huge. Um, yeah. No, basically, it's it's almost everybody, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost everybody. There's a very small selection of people I've met who I think have really mastered teaching. Right. Is there a lesson that you would like to impart? Everybody starts with, oh, I don't know if I really know anything. Uh, <laughs> so just so you know, it's okay. Um, but yeah, is there a lesson that you'd like to impart? Well, I mean, I think it's interesting that you said that everybody starts with, oh, I don't know. And I think maybe that's maybe that's a good one, you know? Like, nobody knows, you know? And I think when you, when you remember that nobody knows what's really going on in terms of career and, like, we're all just trying to make a, a, a way of it, like, trying not to be bitter, trying to stay humble, and just remembering that, like, none of this matters. Just do what makes you happy in, in the way you, you construct your career, and that's going to be the thing with the most longevity. I think it's the most sustainable way. What does um, being humble mean to you? Remember that it's difficult. It's just always difficult. I just don't find it any easier. It's just really difficult all the time. <laughs> it's like, like, making music is hard, mm -hmm. man, mm -hmm. you know? Every time I've been, like, oh, I've played this piece before, I'm going to have an okay time. Mm. I've always been like, oh, God, this is hard, you know? I think, I think, that's, I think that's the way I feel, yeah. That sounds so sad. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay, that's okay. Coming back to this, I think I've, I've definitely met, like, people who have felt quite bitter about not receiving recognition at the right time or something and um i think you know there were probably times in my life when i was really bitter about not receiving something but you you can't be but so you have to be grateful for those things that you do receive and when you don't then whatever i mean it's not like mm -hmm. they have some deep or objective meaning right um 
I think uh, the more time you spend on juries, the more you realize how completely chaotic and uh, spurious these awards are. I mean, it's pretty messed up, isn't it? It's like, I just, you know, what do these people want to do? I, I, was, I remember what being younger and looking at Marcin Diller and being like, okay, he's won like, you know, 19 billion first prizes <laughs> and he's playing a lot at guitar festivals now. And I was like, is this really, is this, is this a career path? It's like that meme, right? That butterfly meme, which is like this guy being like, is this a career path? And it's like, yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Uh, yes, I actually I love that particular meme. Um, before we talk about competitions, the fa- my favorite one that I've ever seen was, um, is this a gamelan? And it's like composers from the from the twentieth century in Paris. <laughs> 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 um, yes, but competition it is indeed. It's super weird, and you have these people mm. who are ridiculously prolific in competitions, but who essentially don't really do anything else in their in their careers or or who sort of you know at the end of the day you find that you have so many people maybe 70 people let's say within the kind of regular competition circuit um, around the world who are basically all playing Preacher Diabolico and um, the first sonata from Brown and then just like everyone's playing the same repertoire it's so bizarre because on the one hand, I do wonder if competitions have been set up to give people a leg up, but it's giving them a leg up to what in the first place? And then you kind of have this other side of it where competition in itself is so strange because obviously there's no gold standard for music and we don't really know what's better or what's right, worse. Right, right. And... But, I, I, you know, I think the guitar version of this is particularly insidious. I mean, like, it's it more than in other industries, perhaps because it's got such an amateur following and because the, the, the stakes are, well, for whatever reason. You know, this is like obviously there's this whole system of, like, okay, I run a festival and I'll put a competition in it so I can make some extra bucks, and if you do a concert here, then you have to be on the jury. Mm-hmm. But if you come and do a concert and be on the jury and I pay you the fee, then you'll have to invite me to your festival, right? So it's just like kind of concert swapping and the competition is nothing more than a mechanism through which to, to make a bit of extra cash and get a, like, you know, a cheap concert at the end of the mm-hmm. day from the prize winner as well as, you know, have some kind of PR for the festival on its home mm-hmm. turf. Um, and it's, it's like, well, it, mm-hmm. it sort of ends up with people who are very good at mm-hmm. like logistics, um, in terms of organizing these things, who are often pretty atrocious mm-hmm. players, being on the jury, evaluating people who are way better than them. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I don't know. I, there's, there's such a limited amount of respect that I can have. I mean, for, for that. And, and um, you know, when you look at like the top, inverted commas, like five competitions in, in, in Europe, I mean, for classical guitar, I mean, of course, excluding things like ARD, which come from a very different set of set of um, operating standards and different history i think when i think of like the majority of european guitar festivals we know who they are like they're absolute Mm. charlatans it's definitely one of the things that gave me my first real guitar related existential crises because you see the people who are at the top and realize that really all they do is tour around usually quite small cities within strange countries Um, with strange people who you maybe don't like that much Mm, honestly mm -hmm, especially mm -hmm. as a girl because a lot of people who organize those festivals they're creepy man (laughs) aren't they so you kind of think oh do i really really want to end up touring in that circuit yeah i i kind of fear that 
unless we start to boycott at least some of the proceeds of of competitions that actually it won't really change because it'll just get passed down it's difficult what do you think we can do about it um <laughs> i mean i mean they they just suck i mean i'm not interested in being a part of it like i don't even know if it's um I don't know, man. Um, what is there an organizational method through which one can one can do this? I mean, like, I feel on the verge of just denouncing people on your podcast now. I can think of like a couple of perverts out there who were like running their disgusting little festivals that are real. Oh, sorry, getting a bit getting a bit blue here. Um, <laughs> did you ever? Um, I can't remember who it was who run this blog, but it used to be there was a blog called a uh, classical guitar soul. And it was like, it was just documenting all these like creeps and like all the junk that they did and stuff. And like eventually it got taken down because this guy started getting like, I think it was a guy in Manchester who ran it, but it, he started getting like, I think he started getting threats basically. Um, and uh, had to, had to stop doing it. But, um, but yeah, maybe, maybe we need to restart classical guitar soul. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, well, I think that it's just maybe offering a lot more opportunities for young guitarists and showing different trajectories or different pathways to success is really important. Right. In like the modern world, there are plenty of ways to get to what you want, if you know what you want, because if what you really want to do is sort of share music with people, which is kind of the subtitle of classical music, then the way in which you do it shouldn't really be policed. And we don't really share anything mm -hmm. by playing in competitions and then playing in a guitar festival. And, you know, if you play in a guitar festival, oh God, this is real assassination, but you really don't have any audience who's enjoying what you're doing. You only have audiences who either feel bad because they play worse than you or feel good because they, in their minds, they play, feel, better, they play than better than you. So um, it's a weird one, but I think opening, opening that door, having that idea that there is more than just compete win first prizes and then eventually get in the circuit i think there's so much more to it than that i mean you obviously also have to be good at talking to people and advocating for yourself and asking because in fact that's you know something that you really can get by doing as well as just talking to programmers yeah, sure. and if a programmer likes you then you know they'll program you <laughs> um yeah i think that you have been a really good uh, example of that because what you've done has not been conventional. Still, somehow, you've managed to hold on to at least what is, for you, maybe passive, but um, this sort of integrity. Well, thanks. Mm. That's, that's nice. Um, the, the musicians that I've really enjoyed over, over the last couple of years have been the ones who have played like, with the least kind of perfection, trying to create their own aesthetic. Like people like Patrizia Carpanchescaia or Pekka Kusisto, um, who play in, I mean, the sort of polar opposites, although in some ways they're, they're sort of very similar, I guess. Um, but I feel like we reached a sort, or we have reached um, largely, and maybe the guitar world is sort of a little behind this, um, a sort of saturation point with competitions. And I think that that's resulted in some really interesting players being, you know, lauded for the very individual ways of playing that they employ. Coming back to this Kapanchaskaya example, um, who plays really robustly and sometimes it's kind of out of tune and sometimes you're listening to it and you're like, wow, this might actually be bad playing or something, but it's still really good. Like I watched, um, I watched uh, Sally Potter's Orlando the other day 
with Tilda Swinton. I don't know if you've seen it, but um, I recommend it. It's like not a very long movie, um, and it's after Virginia Woolf's um, kind of non-binary Orlando figure. So, like Elizabeth the First is played by Quentin Crisp, and Tilda Swinton is Orlando, and and it's like such a particular late eighties, early nineties kind of synth vibe and like I finished watching it with my friend and I was like wow that was kind of really good and it was kind of really bad and my friend was like she was like yeah that was definitely a thing I don't know if I think it's good but I definitely enjoyed it now that's a very harsh thing to to say and it's definitely not the way I really feel about uh Patricia Carpenter Skies playing but there was a point at which she had, earlier in her career, a section of her website which was just, like, bad reviews, and she'd only put the bad ones there, and there were always things like, she plays so out of tune, her bow structure is terrible, um, she's uncontrolled, she's uh, undisciplined, and uh, these reviews were always of, of a certain kind of period in, in history, like, they were, like, from ten years ago and stuff, and now she's being appreciated, she's just really stuck to her guns, and I, I think that... Um, there's a slow sea change of of uh how open we are to to that. I mean, look, how how many more people can come along and say I play faster and more in tune and I'm slightly younger than the last person you saw, right? There's only so far we can go with that. Um and I I feel like I feel I feel certainly like a little liberated with those mm. those characters there. I mean, there's so many things to say about the review culture that we have. It's something really, it's a really complex topic. I mean, creation and commentary on creation and whether what we do is creation or not. It's kind of just generally very tricky to discuss because everything feels quite hot topic. I've been reading a lot of Susan Sontag recently, mm. which has given me major crises with... Oh my God, yeah. ...what we do. <laughs> um and uh, what does she say interpretation is the revenge of the intellectual on creation <laughs> and the more i think about that <laughs> the, the, the more of a idea, breakdown you have sorry exactly. no, i mean i'm interrupting you but yeah. <laughs> no no but it's true because it's sort of like well first what are we doing because that's sort of what we are doing. We are the ones taking revenge, I suppose, because we're the ones interpreting something. And then on top of that, there are people who just, as a living, interpret in a way by critiquing the interpretations that other people make of other people's interpretations. <laughs> I mean, it's uh, it's quite bizarre. And often because also with classical music, a lot of the things that are written for us or like lots of things, lots of the music we play has been written in times of great like oppression mm. where people didn't really have a choice of what they wanted to write anyway. So it's sort of like the genesis of it is often political and the ending of it is also political. Like the outcome is political too, <laughs> in a different mm -hmm. way. I guess in a more general sense, it just, it kind of brings home a lot, um, a lot easier and like a lot clearer that really you should do things that are just motivated by your own desire and your own sort of parameters of what you think is good because um, there's no guarantee that anyone will enjoy what you do and even if they do enjoy what you do you may still feel that it's not really enough or that it's not what you enjoy so yeah oh, it sounds very bleak doesn't it geez well i mean you know i think i think one has got to sort of kind of conserve your your one's own one's own uh uh 
you know, sanity and mind. And, and like, I think, I think you really can't treat these things, uh, as, as more important than, than, um, your own aesthetic project. Uh, and like, they're sort of just on the outskirts and, and sure, like, you know, if, we find a good review we, we definitely take advantage of it but it's it's a tool you know and it's a part of the industry rather than anything um or at least the, you know as mm-hmm. i i find that the easiest way to process it okay i will ask you my third question before we start to you know descend into before we're just crying which would be i know I, I feel like i need a beer now yeah <laughs> well luckily you're gonna have one later when you're out of your yes, quarantine right, right. um <laughs> what is the lesson that you are currently working on I think um, it's it's quite a boring lesson, but I do feel like I have had all this work cancelled and what it's meant is that there are a f- sort of four or five month patches with no work uh, mm. that are then interrupted uh, and violently ruptured by two months of about two years of work. So there's mm. a huge amount of like rep load um, and sort of prioritizing that and understanding what needs focus and mm-hmm. what needs less focus and which works are actually helped through virtue of their structures or your relationship with them that's been established over your years of interpretation and study of them, which works are actually helped by that lack of consolidated uh, time um, mm. And I think that's been something that I've that I've definitely felt that that I've I've gotten something from. Uh, at the same time as being something that is you know it's very organic and it's related to the mood and temperature and all these other ambient things. Um, mm-hmm. So it's it's something that I'm definitely working on. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm. And has it surprised you sort of the amount of work that you can actually fit into a short space of time? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's been a challenge, but it's been really cool as well. I, I think, uh, th- this work rate is, um, unsustainable on many levels, but, uh, I think it's been a really good, uh, experiment in some ways. Um, and, mm. um, I think if I'd approached it with like, oh, I need to, you know, fit in like X, Y, Z amount of practice for each work, I would just not have, um, I would not have managed yeah it's not something that i that i want to repeat or a way that i think is conducive to to a level of artistry that i'm regularly happy with but um and and it's definitely not something that i wish on like wish for us to 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 adopt the standard of either Mm -hmm. um but uh yeah it's been surprising and it's been it's been in some ways good yeah Mm. and do you think that it will change anything about your future process um, I mean, look, I would say that, like, by and large, the, the way I've approached work um, is has not changed. And um, it's not, and, and that, is, that is not something that I think is healthy. You know, I do think there has been an opportunity for a healthy recontextualization that I've not taken advantage of. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I think I, I usually look back on the last couple of years and be like, pre-corona, I mean, um, mm. I'd be like, well, uh, in general, I probably leave things slightly too late. I overwork myself a little bit more than I can get away with in the long term. Mm. Um, and that uh, intermittent obsessive discipline is tempered by, once the concert is over, a sort of slightly out of control hedonism. 
Um, and in terms of what's happened over the last 18 months, in terms of corona, that's just been amplified. There's been more discipline, more unsustainability, and uh, more hedonism. I mean, my sister and I both moved back into our parents' um, place when the pandemic hit. And it was just like, our parents were like, what is wrong with you both? Like, you're getting through two bottles of whiskey a week. Like, this is not sustainable. Go and run, you know, grow up. Um, and I was like, oh, God, you know, it's bad when your parents are, like, telling you off for, like, being out of control and you're both, like, hitting 30 in the next couple of years, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, in terms of something that I'm also aware of, like, I, I mean, sure, look, I'm not completely lacking in self-awareness that I don't realize that this is an issue that I need to work on. Uh, but also, it's quarter past four and I would like a beer. Well, <laughs> it's five o'clock somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I was, like, 45 minutes holding on to the <laughs> <laughs>